Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Praise be to God. I'm so thankful that uh, every week we come and we hear the word of the Lord and we get fed. I hope that you guys get fed as much as I do during the week. I get fed when God teaches me the sermon throughout the week. I hope you guys get fed on Sundays when you listen or Mondays or Tuesdays or Wednesdays or Thursdays or Fridays or Saturdays when you also listen if you're coming from SoundCloud or all over the world. Um, if you guys want to join me in a word of prayer before we start our service, because you know I just need God's help. Lord, as, as we talked about uh, last week with our five principles that Jesus practiced in the garden, I'm about to do a big thing for the Lord. I'm about to preach a sermon, so I need God's help. I need God's, uh, just his ability that he can give me to do this, because I can't do this on my own. So if you guys want to join me in a word of prayer, and I'll ask the Lord for his help and, and guidance and, and all these spiritual things. So Lord, we just, uh, we thank you, Lord. And we praise you, Lord, as a church, and I thank you and praise you, Lord God, as their leader. And I just uh, thank you, Lord God, for your love and for your mercy and your grace that you pour out upon all mankind. Lord, and um, I, I'll, I need your help, Lord. I just need your help, Lord God. I, I can't do this on my own. I can't preach on my own. I can't minister for you on my own, Lord God. I need your help. And Lord, just like last week we read, Jesus says he was going to go do a major thing in the five principles Christ practiced in the garden with the disciples. Lord, he prayed because he knew he was going to do a big thing for you. Lord, well, this is a big thing for me, and I just need your help too. Lord, so following his example, Lord, please help me to preach this message, Lord, and help me to do it with power. Lord, help me to do it with, with wisdom, Lord, and help me to relay your message to those that, that will listen to this message, Lord God, wherever and whenever, Lord God. Help me to relay this message, Lord, and help them to understand it, Lord. Help them to understand what you have to say, Lord, and help them not to be just hearers of the word only, but, Lord, help them to be doers of your word. Lord, we praise you, and we thank you, and we love you. We just ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So before I actually get to my thoughts from last week's message, I have to make a correction. Uh, I, I got told last week after last week's message, and then I went back and listened to uh, a, a, somebody said something really simple to me. They said, you know, what you said today, I kind of got confused. And I said, well, what was that about? And he said, well, when you opened up, you said something like, when you start, you just start with a blank piece of paper and then you just start talking. Then you start, you know, doing your sermon. Do you really just stand up in the morning and, and then just preach from what you know or, you know, don't you prepare? And I said, well, actually, that's not what I meant. I meant that when I start studying for the sermon on Monday, then... You know, I just start with a blank page and then I, you know, ask God for help and then he gives me all the wisdom. And this gentleman said, well, it sounds like you meant that you just start up on Sunday morning and you just open up with a blank page and then you start speaking. Well, I, I said, well, no, I'm sorry. That's not the way I meant it. And I went back and listened to it. So I want to apologize if that's how it sounded. Yes, I start on Monday, tomorrow, starting to prepare for the sermon. And I work seven days on it, Monday through Sunday, even Sunday morning. I work on it right before the service. But on Monday morning or on Monday afternoon when I start practicing, you know, studying for the sermon, I start with basically a blank page and I pray God give me the wisdom and then he starts letting it flow and then Sunday is the result of whatever I prayed for on Monday that God gave me wisdom all week long to study for the sermon. Anyway, I just want to make that correction. I didn't want to make you think I just got up here with, with nothing and just started preaching because I would never do that. I, you know, the Bible says that a worker should be diligent in the Lord. That, you know, we should be diligent and we'd be studied and not just, you know, off the hip. There are certain things that I say off the hip, but certainly not the whole message. So anyway, I wanted to get that clarification out of the way in case anybody else was confused too. Uh, now my thoughts from last week's message, the five principles Christ practiced in the garden. 
Speaking of all five principles that we studied from last week, I want to say again that I think that all the five principles that Christ practiced in the garden are a must practice for every true follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ practiced them. I think so should every true follower of his do it as well. In fact, I don't believe that any true follower of Christ can do well in their walks with Jesus and their following the Bible without keeping these five principles. I believe that these five principles that Christ practiced in the garden are essential to your growth in the Lord. I think they're essential to your walk with the Lord. I think they're essential for your health in the Lord. I think that a healthy Christian practices these five principles. I know I practice these five principles and I am a healthy Christian. My, my walk with the Lord is, is going good and I'm growing in the Lord. I'm not stagnating. And I practice these five principles that Christ practiced in the garden that we studied last week. I wanted to say that up front because... I'm going to say something next, and I just don't want you to get the wrong idea from what I say next, because I think that all five principles are very important. They're super important. But I do believe that there is one that's exceptionally more important than the others. Which one was that? I believe it's number five. I believe that when Jesus went and he prayed those last two times, notice he did that one twice. You know, and that was submitting to God's will after he reveals it to you and praying to accept it instead of praying against it and fighting God. You know, once God shows you his will, uh, my dear son, my, my daughter, this is my will for your life, boom. Then I think instead of fighting God against it, like Jesus did in his last two prayers, we need to accept it and then act on it and then just, you know, submit to it instead of fighting against it. Why do I think this fifth point is the more important principle out of all the other five? Well, here's why. You see, if you don't practice this key principle, especially this one that Christ did in the garden, with your actions and with your prayers, you know, because we verbally tell God and then we act on it too, when God tells you that your will will not be done and your prayer will not be answered because it's not his will, if you don't do that, you can easily get offended and angry with God and you can even walk away from him possibly. There's two different people in the Bible that remind me of this idea. And that one would be John the Baptist and one would be Jonah. John the Baptist, we have a scripture uh, in Matthew 11, 1 through 6, where we read about John the Baptist in prison. And we read about, he starts doubting. And, and, and I believe he starts doubting because, you know, he was not where he thought he should be. John the Baptist had this great, I'm sure he had this great plan in his own mind about how his walk with God and how his walk with the Messiah, the Christ, would be. And yet, toward the end of his life, right before he was beheaded in prison, he starts doubting in Matthew 11, 1 through 6. And, and, he, and he sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, you know, are you, to ask them, are you the coming one or are we to wait for another? And this is after John the Baptist had seen the dove falling on Christ at the baptism. Heard God from heaven speak that this is the one. So what was happening? John the Baptist was doubting that Jesus Christ was the Christ, was the Messiah, because his life was not exactly how 
he wanted it to be. His life was going the way God wanted it to be. God's desire for him was that he spend the last days of his life in prison and martyred for Christ because God could have stopped it, absolutely. And so uh, Jesus in his response in verse 6 says of John the Baptist and really all of us, because really it was easy for John the Baptist to get offended because he wasn't where he wanted to be. Jesus says of John and everyone, every believer ever, he says, and blessed is he was not offended because of me. And Jesus said this because it's, again, really easy. You know, think of poor John. He's in prison. He's getting pretty depressed. This is not the way I thought I was going to live my life for God and the Messiah. And now here he is, stuck in prison, about to die. So Jesus says, blessed is he who's not offended with me. That's John the Baptist. When you look at Jonah, I'm not even sure he died saved. When you look at Jonah, God gave him a message. Hey, go to the Ninevites. I want you to go and preach this message. And Jonah ran. Then God had to basically discipline him harshly, so harshly spank him. May had, had him thrown into the sea and a great fish eat him. And he spent three days in the belly of the fish where I think literally he died. And then the Bible says that he spent, basically, I think he spent the, the, the low, in the lowest parts of Sheol, which was hell. I think he spent three days in hell. And then God raised him back to life, basically vomited him by the fish up on the sea. Jonah's walking in and in of a preaching this message from God. He didn't even want to do it, but then he did it. That wasn't his will. That was God's will that he did it. Then after he preached this message, Nineveh just turns to the Lord, right? Everybody in Nineveh turns to the Lord. And then what does Jonah do? Instead of rejoicing that all these thousands and thousands upon thousands of people got saved and that God didn't destroy Nineveh, he goes up on this hill to look down to see what God's going to do. And he sat there and pout. And then God comes to him and he talks to him and says, Didn't this why I didn't want to come here? Because I knew that you were a God of mercy and a God of grace and that you were, you know, I thought you might do this. Well, Jonah didn't like God's will. And so when you read the end of the book of Jonah, you don't even know if Jonah ever made it right with God. It, it, he ended the book, of the, the book of Jonah ended where Jonah was an angry, bitter man. All because why? It, God said, I'm going to do my will, Jonah not your will. I want to save those people, Jonah. You wanted me to destroy them. And so it's so important. It's so important that we submit to God's will and path for our life once he reveals it to us and not fight it or doubt it. And I want you to think about this from a human perspective. It sure is really easy to get mad and angry with someone when they offend you, right? I mean, when somebody offends you and they do something you don't like, it sure is easy to get mad at them. In fact, I had a gal at one of my jobs last week that got mad and angry at me. She told me something and said, well, don't tell nobody. Here's this one thing. And I said, oh, absolutely. And of course, I prayed about the situation and I'm not going to say what it is now. But she asked me to, told me something without, and didn't ask me not to pray and say anything about it. I said, okay. Well, then she comes, the next time I work with her, couple few weeks later, the only buddy that I had talked to this situation about was God. She comes that one day and she gets just bitterly angry with me. Won't even say a word to me. Won't speak to me. Won't look at me. Nothing. Nothing. I said, hi. Hi, how are you today? Oh, hey, what about this right here? Nothing. Just completely cut me off like I wasn't even in front of her. It was just, I was like, wow, what did I do? I committed it to prayers. 
Lord, I don't know what's going on. I just pray you'd save her, Lord. I, I don't know what's happening, Lord. I don't know what I did, but Lord, uh, you know, I just, I just started praying about it. Turns out that after I prayed about it, next time I talked to her, I kind of brought it up and I just was, you know, started talking about it. Well, it turns out somebody else that she told about this certain thing said something about this certain thing and she thought it was me. Nevertheless, God worked it all out because I asked him to and we're friends again, work friends like we were before. But nevertheless, it's a good picture. She got offended with me for something she thought I did. And what did she do? She basically cut it off. Cut our relationship off. That was it. I'm never going to speak to him ever again. He's done. I'm done. And so basically she stopped having anything to do with me because she was offended with, with me about something she thought I did. Well, that's from a human perspective. Well, since God is a someone that you can get angry with when he tells you it has to be his way and not yours, you can easily get offended and angry with him because you want it your way. You want your prayer to be answered, and God, you better, I, you, why aren't you answering my prayer? And if you're not, well, I'm just going to get angry. So, it's so important, last time, that we submit to God's will and path for our lives, whatever it is, and pray to accept it. Pray, yes, Lord, if this is your will for my life, whatever it is, Lord, let that will be done. I think again, All five principles are a must-follow for all Christians, but this number five is absolutely much more important than all of the others. And we're actually going to see it in our scripture today because we're going to see how the disciples fit this bill in my sermon this week titled, Peter's Silly Attempt to Rescue Jesus. Peter's Silly Attempt to Rescue to rescue Jesus. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 56. So if you want to read along with me, I'm going to read them now, and then we'll study them. Matthew 26, 47, if you want to join me, or you can just listen along. Bible says, And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they come and laid their hands on Jesus, and they took him. And suddenly one of those who was with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Verse 52. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to his multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. So, last week we read of what? Again, Jesus praying in the garden. He prayed first of all, Lord, if... if, the, if 
if there's any way that this cup can pass, let this cup pass from me, right? Because he didn't want to go to the cross. God sends an angel, strengthens him. He realizes it's God's will for him to go to the cross. He goes two more times, boom, boom. And he says, Lord, if this is your will, then let it be done, Lord. If this is your will, let it be done. And remember, he went, goes to the disciples first, finds them sleeping, wakes them up. Second time he goes back, he sees him. He just says, oh, you know what? They're just sleeping. Forget it. He goes back again. Third time he comes back, he sees him sleeping again. But this time he wakes them up and he says, verse 47 again, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the 12 with the great multitudes with swords and clubs came from the chief priests and elders of the people. What happens? Finally, the wolf in sheep's clothing. After all this time, finally, the wolf in sheep's clothing comes and he reveals himself to the twelve, and he reveals himself to Christ openly, as if Jesus didn't know. And he brings with him what? All these Roman soldiers armed to the teeth with swords and clubs. And they come what? To do what? To arrest him. So that, as this scripture says here, so that the scriptures may be fulfilled. Now, this is so sad, I have to say. Because why? Look at Jesus. He never did anything. All he ever did was tell people the truth and share God's love and God's path of salvation with people. Yet, upon all his love, his reward was a slap in the face by Judas and these Roman soldiers that came to arrest him. 55, we're not going to read it later, we're going to read it now, and our scripture says, is in that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I said daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. He says, I didn't say nothing. I didn't hurt anybody. I didn't, I didn't, I never, I never attacked anybody. I wasn't like a thief, or, a, or I wasn't a, a, you know, a vandal. I wasn't a criminal. I wasn't a robber. And yet, here you are. Here you are to come and take me, yet even though I have done nothing wrong. So sad. So sad that Christ loved and all he got was hate. Now, even though this is so sad, remember, Judas, the Bible tells us, we read some time back that Judas got filled with the devil when he took that last piece of bread from Christ at the Last Supper. And Jesus said in John 10.10 that the thief speaking of Satan does not come except to steal, kill, and to destroy. And knowing this already, of course, as Christ did, Jesus definitely wasn't surprised at this this move by Judas at all. Look at what Judas does next, verses 48 and 49. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. What happened here? You see, Judas, again, as I talked about before, this was premeditated. Judas and all the, or in fact, all the religious leaders, they had a premeditated idea of what they were going to do to Jesus. Judas here, we see, had a premeditated idea of how I'm going to attack Jesus. He went to the chief priest. He went to the elders. He went to the scribes and said, this is what I'm going to do. Here's how we're going to go. Send these regimented. So he had this all planned out. And what does he do? He plans this all out, and he comes forth, and he brings it forth to fruition. He brings it out, and he says, here it is. Here's what we're going to do. He comes, gives him the kiss. Get him, guys! And he fulfills his plan. Now, have to make a note here. 
before you think that this was a sexual thing of Judas to do to give Jesus a kiss as he betrays him, I don't want you to think that because that's not the truth. Really, if you study world and the peoples of the world and cultures of the world, this was an Eastern or Jewish, Eastern and Jewish cultural practice. Okay, people in the East, people in Judaism, they just do this kind of thing. This kiss is something usually given on the person's right or left or both cheeks as they greet somebody. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that these people groups still practice this kind of thing today. They give one another a kiss on the cheek as they meet one another. I believe even Italians do that in their culture. Now, after Christ rose from the dead, even this is even more in the Bible, both apostles, Peter and Paul, Romans 16, 16 and 1 Peter 5, uh, 1 Peter 5, 14, wrote to Christians in their epistles and told them to greet each other with a holy kiss. And this is exactly what the disciples were telling their followers, the churches that followed them, you know, they were apostles and they had churches that, you know, they led. This is exactly what they told them to do, this being a Jewish and, again, a Eastern culture. So I want you to know that Judas did not come up and give Jesus a kiss because they were homosexual. Okay, there's a big movement in this world nowadays that people are coming out and saying, oh, the Bible, the Bible says, oh, homosexuality is okay. Oh, man, you know, even in fact, Jesus and, you know, with this Enoch and all this stuff, and he approved homosexuality, too. No, the Bible says that homosexuality and LGBT and all this other stuff, the Bible says that all that stuff is abomination to God. Okay, so no, the Bible does not support homosexuality just because Judas came to Jesus and he gave him a kiss on the cheek and fulfilling an Eastern or a Jewish cultural traditional thing. It's absurd. The Bible nowhere says that homosexuality is okay. In fact, the Bible condemns it, says it's an abomination to God. And God says that I want man and woman to be together and procreate. And well, two men cannot procreate, neither can two women without the help of modern uh, secular science. So moving on. So Judas comes, give Jesus a kiss. How does Jesus respond to the way Judas comes to betray him? Read the first part of verse 50. But Jesus says to him, friend, why have you come? Did you see that there? Did you see that huge point there? Jesus calls Judas friend. Friend, why have you come? I'd ask yourself, I want you to ask yourself, do you think here Jesus was being facetious? Do you think Jesus maybe called Judas a friend by accident? Maybe. Well, I don't think either one's true. Absolutely not. Even though Judas had come to betray Christ, the New Testament, out of Jesus' mouth himself, calls Jesus a friend of sinners. Where? Jesus speaking in Matthew 11, 18 and 19 says to the people, he says that people said of himself, so this is a testimony that people were giving of of him, verse 18, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus himself was a friend of sinners. When you read the New Testament as a whole, you'll find that wherever Christ was, he was kind of hanging out with what the world even now would consider the lowly crowd. 
he kind of hung out with the prostitutes. He hung out with the tax collectors. He hung out with the sinners. He hung out with those that were openly sinful and on their way to hell, not to hang out with them to do what they did, but to hang out with them so that he could teach them God's word. And he did this, he openly hung out with these people, whether they accepted him or rejected him, so that he could teach them God's way. He hung out with those people, in fact, more than he did with those that were openly professing to be righteous, but still on their way to hell. Because guess what? The religious leaders of Jesus' day were all hypocrites. They only wanted the people's praise and glory and honor for themselves. They didn't want to give the glory and honor to God. They only wanted that for themselves. So, But if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, my point is here is Jesus hung out with, ate with, and, and, and talked with, and dealt with the open sinners of the world more than he, than he hung out with the open supposed righteous of the world because he was a friend of sinners. So no... Here, Jesus is not being facetious, and he didn't call Judas friend by accident. He said this because he still loved Judas. He still longed to be Judas' friend. You know, Judas had betrayed him, and Judas was on his way to hell, but nevertheless, in Christ's eyes, he still looked at Judas in a friendly, loving way because he was a friend of sinners. I want, it, I want you to think to yourself, because I thought to myself after I read the scripture over, and I want you to think to yourself how amazing the love of Christ really is. The more I read verses like this, the more, I re- more I'm, like, I'm convinced that God definitely hates nobody. I do believe there is a saying, and it's not written in the Bible, but people have said it. But I do wholeheartedly believe in this saying, and and somebody said this a long time ago, and I don't even know who said it. I didn't even think to look it up, but it goes like this. God loves the sinner, but hates their sin. What does that mean? It means that no matter where you are, no matter what walk of life you're in, no matter how much sin you're steeped in, whether you're on your way to hell or whether you're redeemed by God, Jesus Christ loves you. But... He does not approve of your sin. And if you're in willful sin, and in sin that the Bible says will send you to hell, then God hates your sin because guess what? That sin is going to take you to hell someday. But that still does not stop God's love for you. For God is love. The Apostle John writes about that in 1 John. So, God loves the sinner but hates their sin. And when I read the Bible and the New Testament especially, that's what I see more and more and more. So, do Judas and those who are with him respond favorably towards Christ's loving word toward Judas? Read the rest of verse 50, start at then. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Now this is heartbreaking to me. I hope it's heartbreaking to you too. Christ reaches out in love towards Judas. And Judas, even after Christ reaches out to him in love, allows these evil people to take Christ away and put their hands on him and arrest him and take him away. You know, many treat Christ this way even today. I'm talking about guys like Richard Dawkins, Stephen Hawking, Bill Maurer, or Mayer, I don't know how you say it, but 
Bill Maurer, I'll say it, Bill Maurer. These people are all openly against God. They're openly against Jesus Christ. They're openly against Christianity as a whole. And yet, God is still reaching out for them. Jesus is still in love with them. Jesus still wants to save them, even though they're lost and against him openly. And even though he still wants to save them, even though he still reaches out to them, just like Christ reached out to Judas here, right at the cusp of his betrayal of Christ, they still reach out today and they reject his outreach and they attack him, even though he loves them. One thing I think was funny, well, me and my family went to go see this movie. It's by, I don't, I don't really, I forget who it's by, but it's a Christian movie. It's the name of it. It's called God's Not Dead. And you know, one thing I always find funny about those that want to openly attack God and openly attack Christ is, is there was a line in this movie, actually a little section in this movie where the student's talking to the atheist professor and he makes this point and he says, you know, if you don't believe in God, which is what an atheist is, they don't believe in God, why do you fight so hard to make people not believe in him when you don't even believe in him yourself? You don't think he's real. If they really don't believe in God or Christ, why do they spend any time at all trying to get people not to believe? Yet, they spend their lives trying to get these trying to make people that do believe in God not believe, and yet they don't believe in him themselves. But yet they don't believe in him, yet they lash out against him. They lash out against his faith. They lash, lash out against Christ. And they talk blasphemous things against him, and yet they don't believe in him. And yet, just like Judas and the Roman soldiers did here to Jesus, people are still doing this same thing today. So, Jesus, these guys come and grab Jesus to arrest him for him doing nothing wrong. Look at what happens next. Read verse 51. Suddenly, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Wow. Well, Matthew doesn't tell us who this is referring to, but John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verse 10, along with... Uh, tells us who this is, along with the name of the one being attacked. Matthew leaves these little details out, but John 18.10 tells us, uh, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. The servant's name was Melchus. So, Peter is the culprit, the apostle or disciple. Peter is the culprit of the one that takes out his sword and he cuts off Melchus's ear. Now, I and hopefully you have to give Peter a little credit here for doing this. Why, you say? Well, Peter in doing this shows a lot of heart. The Bible says here, made it very clear that there is a multitude of soldiers against Christ with his 11 disciples. Uh, so basically we're talking hundreds, if not a thousand, Roman soldiers here in this garden coming to take Jesus. So this, in a humanly perspective, there is a no-win situation here, right? There's no way that Peter and all the other ten disciples, along with Jesus, from a human standpoint, can win this battle. Yet, Peter takes out his sword, and he reaches out, and he strikes his high, servant's, or this high priest's servant's ear. He strikes it off, and so I do have to give him a little credit for that. But... 
Aside from the fact that he shows a little heart here, I also see this as a silly attempt to rescue Jesus. Why? Well, not only are the numbers outweighed here, not only do we have a multitude of Roman soldiers against Peter, ten disciples, and Jesus, but that's ridiculous too. That's silly. There's no reason to even fight. You just give up, right? There's no, there's no, there's absolutely no way you can win. But then on top of that, Peter takes a swing at the high priest servant Malchus to try to rescue Jesus. Why was this a silly attempt to rescue Jesus by, uh, by Peter? Well, this guy wasn't exactly the biggest threat to, to Peter and the disciples, was he? Uh, it, it, you're talking a multitude of Roman soldiers. And then Jesus, that's a threat. I'm sorry, a multitude of Roman soldiers with Judas, they're the threat, right? But Malchus, uh, no way. And in fact, I'll go this, and I believe that God even showed me this this morning. I believe that Malchus was maybe only there from the high priest just to kind of give the high priest a report of what happened. He probably maybe only even had a staff. So Peter here, picture this scene. You have this great multitude of Roman soldiers armed to the teeth with swords and clubs, right? Peter tries to rescue Jesus by attacking the only unarmed guy, right? The servant of the high priest who probably, again, wasn't even armed except for maybe a staff. And he hacks off his ear. A question. How is attacking the only unarmed guy there going to rescue Jesus from the multitude of the Roman soldiers? It's absolutely ridiculous. That's why I titled this sermon, Peter's Silly Attempt to Rescue Jesus. Peter was a fool here. This is ridiculous. There's no way that what he did to Malchus was going to rescue Jesus. In fact, the only thing he did was he made himself look like a fool. Absolutely. I I do have to say, although it was silly, it was heartfelt. You know, Peter's frail attempt. Oh, whack. Oh, wait. Oh, oh, well. You know, so it's silly, but heartfelt. Now, we have Peter making a silly attempt to rescue Jesus by drawing his sword and hacking off Malchus' ear. But how does Christ respond to Peter's attempt? Look at verse 52. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. What does Jesus say? Hey, Peter, put your sword away. Because you know what? Whatever you reap, you're going to sow. It's a law. Bible calls it a law, in fact. Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, repeats it in Galatians 6-7. It's the, it's the law. Whatever a man sows, that is what he's going to reap. If you do evil in your life, and if you live in an evil way in your life, then evil will be repaid to you. If you live a nice, kind life, then people will generally be, they can be kind back to you. Whatever you kind of reap is what you'll sow. I'll, I'll never forget years ago, um, I was uh, the big, one of the biggest heathens that I knew. Well, I stole this radio from my car in a non-so-stealing way. And I did a lot of other mischievous things, and I did a lot of other thefts and things like that. Well, after God saved me, what happened was, is all of a sudden, one by one by one, and I didn't realize it right away, all these things started getting either stolen from me or they, I started losing them. Until one of the very last things that I stole and in a very deceitful way, was taken away from me. I had stole this radio from my car, and then all of a sudden, the faceplate for this radio is gone, and, that, and, I, and God showed it to me. That was the very last thing you stole. See, that's what you reaped. 
You stole all these things, and now look, you lost all these things. All these things were stolen away from you. Whatever man sows, don't be fooled, God's not mocked, that he will reap. So Jesus tells Peter this right here. Hey, whatever you sow here, if you strike this man, if you fight with the sword, if you do this evil with the sword, then that sword's going to come back on you. So, end of that, we have Peter making a silly attempt to rescue Jesus by drawing a sword. Um, you know, Jesus telling him no, but there was another reason why Jesus didn't want Peter's help. Read verse 53. He says, Or do you not think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus informs Peter and the other 11 that he want, that if he wanted, he could pray and get 12 legions of angels to come and help him at that very moment. In case you're wondering just how many angels Jesus is talking about here that can come and help him, let's just say, you know, for a reference that Jesus was referring to a Roman legion here. Because that's what the disciples would have understood, right? I mean, Jerusalem at this time, the Jews at this time were under Roman authority, right? So they would have recognized a legion, and this is something that, the, you know, in history we have Roman legions. So we're just going to say, for reference point, that Jesus was referring to a Roman legion, okay? Well, one Roman legion of men was 5,000 men. And that was... And that was Along with, you know, there were leaders over that and everything too. But one Roman legion was 5,000 men. And Jesus just told Peter here that, don't you think I can pray and ask the Father for 12 legions of angels? So if we multiply that out, make the tentative bridge here that it was a Roman legion, Jesus was roughly talking about 60,000 angels that he could have made one prayer And God could have sent down 60,000 angels to deliver him from this situation. Now, that's more than they would have ever needed to destroy uh, Judas and those that he brought with him, uh, which was just a few hundred or a thousand Roman soldiers. In fact, if you look biblically, that's 59,996 more angels than it would take to devastate the whole world. Just look to Revelation in the four horsemen of the apocalypse. There's a red, uh, there's these four colored horse, red and green and, and white and, and burl, I believe. They're, they're, I forget the other color. And they come down and they basically devastate the whole world and destroy a third of this and destroy a third of that land and destroy this, that, and the other thing. And so just four angels at the end of the world come and devastate the whole world And Jesus said, don't you think, Peter, that I can't pray and God can't send me 60,000 angels to deliver me? And again, if four angels can devastate the whole world or will devastate the whole world, what do you think 60,000 could do to Judas and just a few hundred, maybe a thousand Roman soldiers? And if you're thinking, well, from the angel's perspective, from the angel's perspective, I'm sure, uh, don't you think for a second that there weren't 60,000 plus angels waiting to hear from Jesus and just to ask for help. They would have loved to come down and rescue Christ from the situation that he was in. So Jesus tells Peter to stand down and he tell and he does not call, he does not pray for 60,000 angels to come down and help him, but why? Look at verses 54 and 56. Don't read 55. We already read that one. 
But look at verses 54 and 56 here. Why did Jesus not ask God for 60,000 soldiers? Why did he not allow Peter to make a futile and silly attempt to help him? Because with verse 54, he says, How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus in 56? But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. You see, if Christ would have allowed help, or Christ would have asked God for 60,000 angels, 12 legions of angels to come and help him, then in a nutshell, God's will for his life to go to the cross, to suffer, to die, to pay the sin penalty for mankind, would have not been able to be fulfilled. Jesus would not have gone to the cross, not then being able to offer eternal salvation to all those that would ever come to him for that. So Jesus said, I can't have helped Judas. God already revealed it to me just a little bit ago in prayer through an angel and his will. Hey, Jesus, it's my will that you go to the cross. It's not my will that you escape. Here we do see, though, as I referenced some time back in a sermon, that Jesus here, it was another way that Jesus could have escaped the cross. Yet, he didn't. He tells Judas, stand down. He doesn't pray and ask God for 12 legions of angels to deliver him. He goes to the cross and he stays the course for and because of his amazing love for us. Did you know that his love for you and me kept him going to the cross? His love for you and me kept him on the cross. John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater has no one than this. Greater love has no one than this. Than to lay down one's life for his friends. Now that context was speaking, he was speaking of his disciples because they were his friends. They had turned to him and they were his friends at the time. But as we already read in Matthew 11, we know that Jesus is friend, a friend of sinners. So in essence, we can apply that scripture to the whole Bible and say, the whole New Testament and say that Christ says here, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for the whole world from all the people that even don't love me in the whole world. Remember, His love kept him going to the cross and his love for you kept him on the cross so that he could pay your sin penalty and offer you eternal life. Now, what do Peter and the rest of the disciples do when they see that Jesus is going to surrender to those who had come to take him? What do the disciples do when Jesus makes good on what he had been telling them he would do time after time after time before? Remember, he's already told him uh, several times, a lot of times, actually, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed. They're going to to sell me into the hands of sinners, and I'm going to die, and then I'm going to resurrect. What what did the disciples do after they realized Jesus is not going to fight back? Jesus is going to submit to God's will? Did they say, all right, we're going to practice that fifth principle, Jesus. All right, Lord, let your will be done. No, they don't. Read the rest of verse 56 to finish. The very end there, it says, Then all the disciples forsook him, and they fled. How sad is that? And they left him in his deepest hour of need. Imagine, it was already just 11 in Jesus, 
and you have Judas the betrayer and hundreds or a thousand Roman soldiers standing here ready to attack him. Jesus needed some moral support, and yet the disciples fled like cowards because they didn't practice the submit to God when they see this is God's will. They didn't submit to it. They could have. Jesus said, hey, this is what's written in the scripture. This is God's will for my life. They could have said, all right, well, now that we know it's God's will, we'll, we'll submit. We'll surrender. But what did I say earlier in my intro about the fifth principle that Christ practiced in the garden? That, to me, was the most important of the five principles to practice, right? What... What did I say about it? I said, submitting to God's will after he reveals it to you and praying to accept it instead of praying against it and fighting God is one of those five principles that you should practice, right? And what did I say could happen if you didn't practice this principle? What did I say? I said this in my overview or my, or my thoughts from last week. I said, you can easily get offended and angry with God because it's not your way and you could do what? You could walk away from him. Isn't that what we see the 11 disciples do right here? We see them, they say, it's not my way. You mean it's not going to be my will? We're not going to be able to deliver you from this? Jesus, you won't call for help? Oh, man. It's not my will. It's not my way. We're out of here. And they run and they flee from Christ. They were not willing to submit and accept God's will for Christ. So they run away from Jesus in his time of need when Jesus won't take their path and he continues on his own path. Really, if you think about it, if you look back at Peter's silly attempt to rescue Christ, although Peter pulling his sword and trying to defend Christ was kind of heartfelt, but silly, It was also, if you think about it, when you look at the last couple verses there, it was actually also rebellion against God. I've mentioned before, I'll say it again. Remember, Jesus leading up to this point, probably halfway or even better into his ministry, Jesus starts telling his disciples, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be put in the hand of sinners, and they're going to kill me. And remember, that's where Peter's famous quote from comes from, No, Lord, not so with you, when Jesus turns around and says, Get behind me, Satan. Right? Get behind me, Satan. So the disciples well knew that this was God's plan for Jesus' life to go to this cross and die. And yet Peter here, seeing it unfold before his eyes, doesn't want to submit to it, but fights against it. Christians, I cannot stress enough the fact that we must practice all those five principles that we started talking about in the beginning of our sermon and we had in our sermon from last week that Christ practiced in the garden with his disciples that we read about. But we must absolutely practice the fifth one, especially above all the rest. We need to make it our aim to submit to God's will no matter what it may be for our lives and we must not resist it. Because if we just don't submit to it, like Peter and the disciples didn't and they wouldn't, we can easily get offended and angry with God and forsake him like the disciples do here when it doesn't go their way. Question for all of us to answer, to ask ourselves today. 
Do we actually think that our ways are better than God's ways? I can tell you, our ways are not better than God's ways. And the Bible even tells us so by a man that had a first-hand experience with this, Solomon, in Proverbs 14, 12, where Solomon says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And again, Solomon found this out firsthand as toward a, a, a time in his life, Solomon fell away from God. And it wasn't until the very end of Solomon's life that Solomon realized, hey, I've blown it, and he kind of turns back to God. But Solomon lived many years of his life, even after he had come to know God, in rebellion against God. Not living the way that God told him to live, which I think was partly why it, you know, God inspired him to write Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So no, Christians, our ways are not better than God's ways. Our will is not better than God's will for our lives. God's will for our lives is much better than our will for our lives. Even though we may not understand it, His will is much better for our lives than our wills are. I ask another question to Christians and all of us, including myself. I want you to ask yourself, I want you to remember actually, not a question, I want you to remember something. How well did you do running your life before Christ came into it? If you're like me and you're honest, I'd say not so good. I mean, look at Peter here. Although Peter was a disciple of Christ, he actually didn't get saved until after Christ resurrected. But he was a follower, but he was kind of sat on the fence a lot. You know, he was close to Jesus, but yet he kind of, you know, had some struggles. Look at Peter's silly choice to try to rescue Christ here, right? Look at his choice that he made, right? This was his own thing that he did. He takes his sword, he hacks off an ear of the servant of the high priest, then he causes, another scripture tells us, Jesus actually picked up the ear and, you know, fixed it. So then Jesus had to make more work for Jesus because Peter decided to do something that was not God's will. Again, this was the decision that he made on his own and in his own wisdom. This was not Christ-led. And what did it make? What did it make for? Peter living in his own wisdom, doing his own thing. It made what? Us to laugh today at him. I know I thought it was funny. And I think all you guys did too, if you think about it. I mean, there was no reason why why Peter did this. It was just ridiculous. It made us laugh at him today when he lived in his own will and for his own desire. And what else did it get him? It got him rebuked by Christ for doing it. Put your sword back, Peter. What are you doing? Hey, God's will can't be fulfilled if you're doing that, Peter. If you're going to live in your own will, then you're not going to fulfill God's will. I'll go back to my life like this before Christ. My life was a big joke. And I screwed my life up in the past royally. In fact, I ruined it. And I was always miserable. So Christians... Please make it your diligence to practice submitting to God's will for your life, whatever it is that he shows you once he reveals it to you, and don't fight against it. In fact, just pray, God, give me the strength to live the will that you have for my life. I have to do that on a daily basis. God, give me the strength that you have for my life. 
or that give me the strength I need to live your will in my life and not my own. I pray it, in fact, uh, often for those that are persecuted for Christ's sake, those that are in prison for Christ's sake all over the world, right? Those people are living in God's will. God's will said, hey, it's going to happen. You're going to be persecuted. God's allowing the, the people that are in prison for Christ's name to be there. He could deliver them at any moment, yet he doesn't. Because guess what? He has a will for their lives. And that will for their lives is for them to be there, for them to be a light for him, to lead people to him. But I'm sure they're looking at it going, man, Lord, I want to be back with my family. So I pray for them every day. God, give them the strength, Lord, to live out your will for their lives. Give them the strength, Lord, because we all need to submit to God's will for our lives, whatever it may be. That's to Christians. I want to give a word, though, to those out there that may not believe or may not be following Christ or may not be saved. I want to give a word to you that are not walking with Christ or not saved today. And I want to ask you something. Multiple things, actually. How are you doing running your own life today? You may think it's great, but how good are your relationships? How much peace do you have in your life? How happy are you really? How much trouble have you gotten yourself into? How much drama do you have in your life and in your relationships? Well, I can tell you that the answer to these questions are not very good because your life is screwed up just like mine used to be. And if you're honest with yourself right now, you have to admit that I'm right. Your life is screwed up just like mine was before I knew Christ and started to live for him and not myself. So I'm here to tell you that your life can get better. You can have peace in your life today. You can have joy. Your life can have meaning instead of being meaningless. And all it takes is for you to come to Christ today and admit that you're wrong and he's right and surrender your life to him and start to look to him for how to live your life and start to look to his word about how you're supposed to live for your live your life instead of trying to live your life for yourself and screwing it up. But remember, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. If your life is not surrendered to Jesus Christ today, then he's waiting for you to make that choice for him and turn to him now for new life today and everlasting life forever. And then you don't have to live a life of death. You don't have to live a life of drama. You don't have to live a life of misery. You don't have to live a life that's all screwed up. All kinds of things going wrong. You can live a life of peace and joy. You can live a life surrendered unto Christ, looking to Him for how to make your life right. How to fix all the things that you've broken. All the relationships that you've screwed up. All the drama that's in your life. You can live a life where God fixes all that and gives you peace. It all lies upon one thing. Will you make that choice to surrender to God or will you keep living for yourself and screwing everything up? I pray today, right now I'm going to pray, that God will change your heart and that you would see that you're wrong and that you would turn to God. So let's pray if you would, please. I praise you, dear God, and I thank you, dear God, for this message, Lord. I pray, Lord God, that you would, Lord, help us, your children, Lord, after this message, Lord, to submit to your will for our lives, whatever it may be, 
and not to fight against it, Lord God, but to accept it and just pray and ask for strength to endure it, Lord, instead of asking for strength or the ability to get away from it, Lord. Lord, David wrote in Psalm 91, I believe, he says, Yea, though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. Lord, you, you said there through David's mouth that you made David go through the valley of the shadow of death, not around it. Lord, your will for our lives may not always be easy, dear God. But Lord, it is better than our will that we have for our lives in our decisions and our choices that we make because we screw it up, Lord. You fix. may not be easy life that you choose for us, Lord, but still you give us peace through it and you fix our lives and you help us to do it with joy and peace, Lord, too. So Lord, I pray today for every true believer that's listening to this message, Lord, God, I pray that you would help us to submit to your will for our lives no matter what it may be, no matter how hard or how difficult that road may be. And Lord, I do pray for any non-believer out there, anybody that's listening that's truly not surrendered unto you, Lord, I pray, dear God, that you would turn their hearts to you, Lord, that they would realize, Lord God, that they screw their lives up, but that, Lord, you can redeem and you can fix them. For, Lord, you are a great redeemer. Lord, you can not only redeem them, but you can redeem their lives. You can redeem their relationships. You can redeem everything that they've screwed up in their lives, Lord God. You can redeem it Redeem it if they would just turn to you, Lord, and be healed. Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, Lord, and help them to make that decision, Lord God. Not thinking about the road ahead, the, maybe the difficult path that you might call them to, Lord, but thinking about the peace and the joy and the love that you can love them with and give them, Lord. I pray, dear God, that anyone listening to this that's not yours, that you would draw them to Christ and that you would save them. And I thank you, dear God, for all these things. And I give you all the glory and honor and praise forever and ever and ever. And ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Praise God, everyone. It's Pastor Ed here. and Thank you so much for listening to the message. It's my prayer that you were encouraged and challenged with what you heard today to be a doer of God's word and not a hearer only. Because your life will soon be passed and only what you've done for Jesus Christ will last. If you live in the Dallas, Texas area, we want to invite you to come to our little house church here in McKinney, Texas. Sunday mornings, our service is at 1015 and the directions can be found on our website. Also, if you have any prayer requests or questions or maybe you believe God has called you to support this church financially, please go to gospelsavingchurch.com and click on the appropriate links. I would love to hear from you personally. God loves you very much. Please love him back by the way you live your life. God bless you and have a wonderful day.